This week's podcast is brought to you by Caffeine Gum Australia. So designed by the US military and tested for athletes, Caffeine Gum has been used in a wide variety of sports for a very long time. I first came across it in 2015 uh, during my brief stint for the Melbourne Rebels and immediately fell in love with the product. So even though I don't play anymore, I still have it before every training session as I find that the rapid absorption through your mouth cavity is, is a lot quicker than when you have a coffee or a Red Bull. So I couldn't recommend it enough. I use it every day and I'm absolutely in love with it. So yeah, if you want to know more, please make sure you check out the website at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Before I introduce today's very special guest, can I ask that if you enjoy the podcast or any of our podcasts, that you subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. And if you can, can you please follow along on social media at Wandering Bear Sports on Instagram or at Wandering Bear Sports on Facebook. Your support means a huge amount to us. Okay, today's very special guest, Mr. Anthony Seabold. So when I first decided that I was going to get into coaching a couple of years ago, or I started getting interested, naturally you look to people who are successful and, and you know people you can emulate and learn from. And obviously I've got a very heavy rugby background, but one of the, one of the first non-rugby people that I came across was, was Anthony Seabold. And I just liked the way he spoke. I liked, I liked the way that he was constantly looking at learning and just the way he presented himself. So I've been following, been following along with his story for the last couple of years. And when the opportunity to speak to him came up, I was obviously very excited about it. And he absolutely did not disappoint. So something I've come to realise and learn in my own life and from talking to a lot of these high performers is that inevitably adversity happens to absolutely everyone. Uh, you don't just win all the time. You don't just have success all the time. And, you know, Seves has had a couple of years of adversity, um, particularly after the Brisbane Broncos experience. And he was really open and, and honest about that time and, and some of the things he learned from it. Um, I wasn't, I'm not too interested in the behind the scenes stuff of what actually happened. But for me as a coach, to see what he learned from that time and how he's handled himself I think that's incredibly valuable for, for anyone that listens to this and, and who goes through hard times. And, you know, I couldn't be more impressed with the guy. And so there's that. We talked a bit about that. We talked a bit about some of the lessons he's learned as a coach, um, some personal development stuff that he's done. Um, you know, he's done a trip to the Brooklyn Mets and, and took away a couple of valuable things there. Um, he's just an impressive individual. He's just signed on as England Rugby's defence coach for the next two years, working with Eddie Jones. And, yeah, let's just, let's just rip right into it. So this is probably one of my favourite podcasts that I've done, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please tell someone, please share it. Um, the podcast is getting better and better, but absolutely still the best way to get stuff out there is word of mouth. So... Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Anthony Seabob. Yeah, hey, mate. Hey, Duncan. Sorry, mate. I was, I was just seeing if I could find my headphones. But it's all good. Yeah, mate. How are you, mate? 
Good, 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 mate. Good. I'm up in uh, Central Queensland at the moment, mate. I'm up in Rocky, so uh, visit my family. Man, half your luck. Sydney's uh, not my favourite place to be at the moment, yeah. but, you know, all things considered, we're, we're in Cronulla, so it's a pretty nice place to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, mate, it's... Um, We've been up here um, for about 11 weeks. Uh, I've been consulting with Newcastle this season, so I come up um, into the bubble with them. And then um, when when the boys got beaten in the uh, finals, um, yeah, we come up to Rocky, mate. My parents, I'm from Central Queensland, so I haven't seen my parents for, for ages, mate. So I brought the family up here and then we'll go back to Sydney. We live in the Northern Beaches at Curl Curl. So um, we'll go back um, next week. Nice, mate. Nice. Well, are you are you good if we just rip straight into it? Let's do, do it, mate. Let's go for it, mate. Go for it. Um, mate, firstly, thanks so much for doing this. Um, this was, you know, when I noticed you'd like to cover my post on, on LinkedIn and I was, you know, I was going, oh, maybe I should, uh, you know, message you. And I was very excited when you agreed to come on uh, for a couple of reasons. When I first decided I wanted to become a coach, obviously you start to look at people who are who are coaches and people that you can listen to and learn from and and you're one of the first people not directly from rugby that I came across so thank you firstly thank you very much for doing this and mate how are you how's life how have you found the last couple of years I mean yeah it's been pretty interesting sort of um, journey the last couple of years I think um I've been coaching professionally for this is my 15th season um so um you know at all different levels. And, you know, the last couple of years have been challenging and testing. You know, there's been some, some you know, really good, um, um, you know, bits over the last couple of years. And there's been some really, um, you know, challenging periods. Obviously, you know, my, my last little period in the Broncos post-COVID was a really hard time. I think we won one from 11 games. And, um, you know, I sort of was um, criticised heavily in the media. And then there was, um, you know, social media, um, you know, I, you know, I don't know, know what to call that, but, you know, the social media attacks and so on. So that was really hard. But um, over the, the you know, my coaching journey, there's been far more positive experiences than, than negative experiences. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going well. I've really, really enjoyed my, 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 um, my roles I've done this year. I've been doing some work in leadership with um, a couple of corporates I've been consulting with Newcastle Knights. I've been doing some projects for Eddie Jones, which has, has led me to uh, taking up a role um, as the assistant coach through to the next World Cup with Eddie, with the England team, which I'm excited about. But um, I'm going well, mate. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a funny last couple of years. And, um, but, you know, there's plenty of learnings. There's no doubt about that. And, and you know, there's plenty of good things that people don't see as well, you know, the relationships you build with players or the little success stories, you know, guys you've given the boost to who have gone on and been consistent first graders or played state of origin and so on. Um, yeah, so it's been a mixed mixed bag. Mate, mate I've, got, I've got so many questions for you and I'm, I'm just going to jump around a little bit because mm-hmm. that's just this is how, how I work, but... The first question I always ask every coach that I'm lucky enough to talk to is, why do you coach? Well, the reason I coach is because um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm there to serve others. You know, when I when I was playing football, uh, when I first started playing footy, rugby league wasn't full-time. I was, uh, was semi-professional at the Brisbane Broncos when I was a young guy, and then I went full-time at Canberra, but... Uh, the reason I, I say that was I did a teaching degree when I was a young guy. So by the time I was 21, mate, I was teaching a year six class. 
and right. playing reserve grade at the Broncos um, at the time. And then I went full-time the following year at Canberra And I think doing a teaching degree as a young guy, um, you know, really helped me with not only my footy, but um, my post-football. My, my post you know, by the time I was finishing my career, I was playing over in the English Super League and I decided to do a Masters of Education. So, um, yeah, I suppose, um, why do I coach? Um, I feel like I've got... Um, you know, some, something to, to, to share with regards to my teaching background. I feel like uh, I'm there as a resource to help others. Um, and I really enjoy the challenge of, of um, you know, of, of coaching. Like there's ups and there's downs, there's good days, there's bad days. You know, I do really enjoy that. But ultimately, I'm there to serve the, the group. And whatever capacity it is over my period of time, whether it's been a head coach, assistant coach, or, or even a consultant coach like I was this year, um, that's at the forefront. That's why I do it. I want to help others because I feel like I had some good people um, help me along the way. During your career, was it the plan to jump into coaching after or was it just something that, that happened? Something that happened. What, what happened was I finished my time over in the Super League and I come back and started teaching and, and I continued to play Queensland Cup. So I was probably in my early 30s. And I started coaching um, the first 13 team at school in Brisbane that I was, I was teaching at and really enjoyed it. And off the back of that, I, um, yeah, I suppose I, I kept coaching at different levels. I, coached, I started to coach some junior representative teams. Then I had an opportunity to go full-time over in the UK um, with one of the assistant coaches from Brisbane Broncos, a great gentleman by the name of John Dixon, who was at the Broncos for 10 years. He was fantastic with developing the younger players going into first grade at the Broncos. So he got a head coach's role in the UK. So really it was a pretty, uh, I suppose, um, yeah, it was a, for me, it made a bit of sense, the transition to go from playing to teaching to coaching um, sort of all aligned for me. And I ha- I've had some fantastic opportunities along the way. So um, I've really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, as I said, man, it's, it was never a plan, but it just sort of happened. And then, so it just sort of seemed to progress from there. I sort of would get an opportunity to um, to either go to um, another um, level with regards to my coaching, you know, so whether it's from semi-pro to, or schoolboy to semi-pro and so on. And yeah, it's just progressed from there. So plenty of learnings along the way. Um, but it was never a plan. Yeah, it was never a plan. I, was, I, I thought I'd be a teacher and then I, I started working at university as a lecturer. I thought that would be sort of my career path and, and coaching uh, came along. Was, it, was there a moment where the coaching bug kind of beat you, if that makes sense? Because because yeah. I, I think there's a lot of people who want to be a coach and then when they actually get the reality of what coaching is, some some people run at it and some people run away from it. Can, can you pinpoint maybe something that you go, ah, oh, this is something that I want to spend my time doing? I suppose um, there's no one... Um, one-off event where I thought, you know, I want to, I want to be a coach, or I want to make this my career. I think there was a whole heap of little experiences that led to me really enjoying being a coach. And, and so I'll give you some examples. So I spoke about the first thirteen team that I coached at school. There was one or two guys that I saw really excel that year and get opportunities to be signed by by professional clubs and and to have a really small part to play in seeing them. Um, achieve something was really good. I went over to the UK and the RFL, which is the Rugby Football League, started a new franchise in, in the south of Wales, which is a traditional rugby union area. 
as I said, John Dixon was the head coach. He asked me to come across there because I played over there in the Super League um, at London Broncos and Hull KR. And he said, look, you know, you probably know a little bit more about the English competition than I do. Would you come across and help set up? So seeing a, um, a team start from, from scratch over in South Wales with a lot of rugby union guys you know, transfer across, like that sort of really lit a bit of a fire in me. And over a three-year period, we went from a second division club into the Super League, which was, you know, again, a really positive experience. So that those yeah those sort of little things at the beginning of my coaching career really I suppose um, ignited that um, yeah want or willingness to to, to coach because it's not for everyone Duncan I think a lot of ex players who have been professionals or played at a good level think you know what well, I want to stay involved in the game I'll be a coach but coaching um, can be um, a grind it's not you know a lot of the stuff you do mate is is planning and watching, you know, analysing, watching opposition, watching your own guys, you know, um, watching training, giving feedback. There's a lot of things that go with it. It's not just sort of turn up five minutes before training, run a couple of drills and then take off. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. You talk to any ex-player, that's the biggest challenge, you know, the amount of planning, the amount of time. As you would know, Duncan, I think you're coaching, um, you know, this these time. days. Yeah, you know, so you would probably know that not long having been a player. It, it was um, – so I've just started coaching this year and, you know, I always wanted to be a coach. But then when you – and I still do and I, I love it. I'm, I'm hooked. Um, but the the human element of it is something that I never expected and I know that I should have expected it. But every single human has different hopes and dreams and aspirations and uh, it's kind of our job. Well, it is our job to try and get through to everyone. There's, there's a lot of young coaches who listen to this podcast and – Something that I got asked for the first time this year was about a coaching philosophy. Is it important, in your opinion, for coaches to have a coaching philosophy? And if so, do you have a coaching philosophy? Well, I think it's important, whether you call it a philosophy or, um, you know, like other people I've heard you know, call it trademarks or, or, or you know, or, or, want, or, or for want of a better word, you know, the pillars to, to, to what they do. Um, now for, so for me, I'll go back to what I spoke about before. You know, you asked me about why I coach. So the first thing for me with regards to my philosophy, I feel as though I'm a servant to the players and to the group. Like I'm there to provide the best environment that I can to provide the best coaching to, um, you know, I suppose, um, you know, give the resources to the players to, to be the best that can be. Now, sometimes that's worked and sometimes it hasn't, but that's essentially, that's, that's number one um, in my coaching philosophy. Second to that is having a growth mindset. Like I'm, I'm somebody who does look at other coaches, um, talk to other coaches, look at other sports, look outside of sport for inspiration, not to change my philosophy, but to grow and get better. And because I think, okay, if I'm going to be a servant to the players, um, and there's a better way of doing things, I need to go and have a look. And there might only be one thing that I take from somebody that I've met or gone and visited or whatever else. But if that's going to help our group be better, then again, that's a way of serving the players. And the third one is this. I think back to when I was a kid growing up, there's a lot of direct instruction or direct coaching. So essentially it was coach at the front of the, the huddle or coach at the front of the room. This is what you need to do. Um, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of interaction. There was no asking of questions. There was no feedback. You know, I didn't know if I was playing good, bad or indifferent. So, again, some people call, call it an athlete-centred approach. But for me, it's just, um, you know, asking questions, giving feedback, getting feedback, um, you know, getting players to 
um, to, to solve the problems. Because in a lot of ways, um, I feel as though as coaches, where the problem designers and the players are the solution finders. So yeah, my philosophy is built around you know, being a servant to the players, having a growth mindset, and, and then having that athlete-centered approach to coaching. How important is a growth mindset? It, it's something that I've just started to learn a lot more about. There's some fantastic books out there like Black Box Thinking and, and plenty of other good stuff like that. Um, for a coach, is, is that something that you would see as a critical element to, to any good coach? Well, I think as a coach, you need to be curious, right? Because there's, there's always different ways of doing things things there's always better ways of doing things there's always more efficient ways of doing things so I think um, as a coach well the best coaches I've worked with certainly have had that um, curious mindset and by that I mean um, you know looking for, for other ways to do things if, if you do the same thing all the time um, you know for, for me um, that is almost like having a fixed mindset. You, you've got to grow. And I think all the best coaches you, you probably see in Australian sport or worldwide sport, they've, they've grown um, over the journey. You know, they, they've not necessarily changed their philosophy. It's not about changing your philosophy, Duncan. It's about, um, you know, as I said before, looking for better ways to do things. And I think as a coach, you need to have a growth mindset. So think back to being a fixed or having a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. If you're a coach and your team doesn't do so well, and you think, well, that's the best we're ever going to do. Well, this is the best I'm ever going to be as a coach. That, for me, is having a fixed mindset. Having a growth mindset is learning from your failures, um, looking at other ways of doing things, challenging the way you do things. And to answer your question, having a growth mindset, I think, is, is um, a key ingredient to being a coach because you want, your, you want to give players feedback, don't you? You want them to get better and, and then to grow. And so you want players to have a growth mindset. So... You can't have a fixed mindset as a coach, in my opinion, and then expect the players to have a growth mindset because we give feedback to help them be better, help them improve, to help them do their job. So I think it's really important that, um, you know, that people look into what, you know, what having a growth mindset, um, what it looks like, what it's about. It's not about changing philosophy. It's about, you know, is there a better way to do this? How can I be better? How much of your time do you spend on looking for other ideas and and how, how do you look for other ideas? How do you how do you try things? How do you how do you do you have like a process to work out what works and what doesn't work, or is it is it a matter of just saying, hey, I like that idea, let's try it. Did it work? Didn't it work? And then just you know assessing and and uh, what do they call like changing it as you go? What's your process with that? No, I, I think you need a clear like first and foremost, mate. You need clarity around philosophy. If you, you chop and change how you do things every other week, mate. You can confuse the staff, you confuse the players, you probably confuse yourself, mate. When you go looking for ideas, often it's at the end of your season, okay? Because you know the NRL where I've been coaching for the last ten or so years, um, it, it, you're in the washing machine, right? So from pre-season November first until your team finishes their last game, you know it could be it could be like literally, you know, nine months of the year, you know, more than that, 10 months of the year, but you're in the washing machine. So you need to give yourself a break, but you also need to, um, okay, re re reinvigorate yourself over that off-season. So I've always found the best time to look for some new ideas is over the off-season. So whether it's, um, you know, connecting with people, contacting people I, I've seen um, in the public eye and, and asking to meet up with them in person, like I've done with guys like Todd Sampson. And, and initially that's how I met Eddie Jones back in 2016 or 2017. 
um, or going on some trips. You know, I've, I've been to America a few times. I've been to Europe a few times and going spending times, not just one day with the club, actually going in, spending a couple of days, sitting in on their team meetings, sitting in on their their, um, their field session, sitting in on their one-on-one. So you actually have a really uh, good opportunity to, to, to look at their processes and think, you know what, um, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a really good idea. And I'll give an example. So I went to Brooklyn Nets, which is the NBA side, um, in 20, end of 2017, leading into my first year as a head coach. And there's a Kiwi guy called Sean Marks there. He's got an All Blacks jersey actually in his office. He's the GM of um, oh, Brooklyn. Yeah. And Sean is a Kiwi guy and he is similar age to me. And he went over there to play college ball, then was signed to San Antonio Spurs. So he played and won championships as a player. Then uh, Popovich got him to be an assistant coach and he was an assistant coach of some championships. Then he moved into the assistant GM role and won uh, championships as an assistant GM. So first ever Kiwi to play in the NBA, had a fantastic career on and off the court. When the Brooklyn Nets were owned by a Russian consortium, when they were looking at, okay, we we want to go and hire someone from the best uh, franchise in the business. They knew they couldn't get Popovich. They knew they couldn't get the GM. So they went for Sean Marks. And I got connected with Sean Marks. I went and spent um, a couple of days there. And this is one little gold nugget that I learned from there. They've got a, a squad of 15 players and they've got five coaches for those 15 players. So essentially what they did was they divided up the players into groups of three. So each coach was given a group of three players and the coach was challenged by Sean to take their daily vitamins. So it's a bit of an Americanism, isn't it? You've got to go and take your daily vitamins. Taking the daily vitamins was literally checking in every morning with those three players in the locker room. It yep. wasn't about conversations about basketball. It was conversations about, you know, what you get up to in your day off? How's the family? How are the kids? What, you know, what do you need help with away from basketball? Whatever it was. But it was a connection piece. And I thought, you know what, that, that is a fantastic idea. So when I got back to South, we had 36 players. So I had six key staff and I divvied up the players into groups of six. And I called them docs groups or junior care groups. And every day, the staff member had to connect with those six players, have a conversation, have a, you know, that, that they had to have considered conversations or intentional conversations with those players every morning when they got in the building. Then once a week, they had to connect socially. So whether it was for a coffee, whether it was for breakfast, whether it was go for a beer, go to a restaurant, whatever it was. So it was left up to them, but they had to take a photo of that little social experience. And we ended up making a little bit of a, um, I suppose, a, a poster of all these different events. And, and in isolation, those little conversations each day don't mean much, but think of those little things becoming big things. And one of the things I was really proud of at South was the connection piece that we had off the back of that pre-season. So all those little conversations, checking points, trust that you build, um, and then having the, the um, you know, those social activities, they weren't forced, but it was almost like having a, a, a you know, a person really check in with you and, and look after you. And I got the idea from Sean Marks and what they did at the Brooklyn Nets. So, you know, that's where I found one idea out of my time at Brooklyn Nets. And I thought I can actually use this because, um, there, you know, there was some some challenges with regards to how the players felt about um, the, the club when I took over at South. So yeah, that's a real life example of getting an idea, taking an idea, and, and implementing it. And um, yeah, so it's not about taking a thousand things from the Brooklyn Nets. It's, it was about taking one one little you know gold nugget and thinking, you know what, it's got some merit in our environment to try and bring um, you know the staff, the players closer together as a group. Just, just on the human connection and, and the culture side of it, something that I've 
found very, very interesting is that it's, it's almost more important than the actual football side of things. And I listened to a couple of podcasts you did where you talked about some of the human connection things that you did at the Rabbitohs. And there was something called the, the Triple H. Correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah. Do you mind just talking about that a little yeah. bit? Because I think that would be very, very useful for a lot of young coaches out there. Yeah. So, again, it was just about doing some – I was doing some reading. I don't often get a chance to read during the season. So, off-season, I do a lot of reading. Um, and I read a book called You Win It in the Locker Room. And it was by John Gordon and Mike Smith. Okay. And I would really recommend young coaches to have a read about it. Mike Smith was an ex, um, I think it was Atlanta, um, Atlanta uh, coach he was. And John Gordon is a, a um, person who's heavily involved in leadership in, in the States. A lot of your listeners probably have heard of him. But anyway, really good book. But there was one gold nugget I took out of it. And it was about, um, I suppose, you know, showing vulnerability as staff, as coaches, as players. And it was a really cool activity that they did. Mike Smith did it. And um, it was called the Triple H. And I actually saw that Richmond did it um, as, as well. But essentially what it was, um, we had Triple H sessions during the preseason there at South City, and it was a 15-minute block, 15-minute window every Friday. So essentially two players and one staff member. So pretty much they had five minutes each. And we didn't do all 36 players and all 20 staff all at once because it just loses its merit. We just had a dedicated 15-minute block every Friday during the preseason. And essentially what they did was they got up and spoke about one highlight they've had in their life so far, one hero they've had in their life so far, and one hardship. And you can imagine with the hardship, often the players or staff, um, it was very emotional, very emotive, and, and some players, some staff members actually would be in tears by telling their hardship, you know, whether it was parents divorcing, them divorcing, um, losing parents um, yeah, through illness or sickness, um, all sorts of different things. But the connection that that brought because of, A, people were willing to show that they were vulnerable, and B, just getting to know people on a deeper level. There were some stories that I heard over that period that I didn't know about staff members or about players. So, again, you, you know, think about knowing the person first. That, that, was, that was, a really, it was a really valuable thing that we did. And um, the feedback from the players was the duty of care groups and the Triple H sessions during the preseason made a significant difference to how connected the group felt. And, and we felt that with our football. Now, if you talk about lessons, if I had a, a lesson again, when I went up to the Broncos, it was six weeks into preseason and I concentrated all on the X's and the O's. I should have started back at the junior care group, should have started back at the, the, um, the Triple H sessions or another type of, of connection piece like that. But I, I suppose this is, you know, potentially... Um, you know, a, a learning or no, it's not a potentially learning. It is a learning, a potential failing. But I started with the X's and the O's because we were six weeks in the preseason. I was thinking, shit, we've got to start playing in March. And um, it was a really tricky period, sticky period. And I should have learned from the previous, um, you know, um, preseason at South. So um, you learn, don't you, mate, you know, along the way. But yeah, that, that Triple H session you're talking about. And I read um, where, where Richmond did it with great success. But I got the idea from, from, um, from Mike Smith and John Gordon in their book, you went in the locker room. I suppose building that human connection when, you know, when you're down by three points, there's 10 minutes to go in a big game. And, and I know, you know, the, the troubles that you've been through, I'm probably going to dig a little bit deeper than if you were just a guy that I worked with. Yeah. So I, I could imagine that would have been very valuable for, for your team and for any 
sporting team or business organisation, yeah. I guess. And, and, Duncan, it doesn't have to be the Triple H. It's just got to be you know, spending some time getting to know people, you know. Like, there's other ways to do that, but that was just a way that, um, you know, I thought, you know what, that's a great idea. Let's, let's have a go at that idea. What's the worst? What's the worst thing that can happen? We spend fifteen minutes getting to know each other a little bit deeper. That's the worst thing that can happen. The best thing that can happen is that we we become a bit more connected. We become a bit more empathetic with each other. So you know, you're not just a footy player here, or you're not just a coach, you're not just a staff member who who's doing a role. You're actually a human being, mate. Who's got challenges and had some successes and had some failures away from here. We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'll ask the question anyway. So something that I've found. Uh, very confronting in my own life is is the the concept of failure because I, I think a lot of people see failure as a final or it's it's often seen as a very negative thing. Whereas uh, certainly from the the people that I talk to and in my own experience, failure has actually been a wonderful learning tool for me. And it's almost like put something out there, make a mistake, adjust, and try again to till it's better. What and I don't like using the term failure. I'll probably prefer adversity. Um, what's your relationship like with failure or, or adversity? Um, yeah, what, what is your failure yeah. relationship yeah, well, like? Well, well, look, you know, um, you know, I don't want to beat around the bush. I feel like my time, my second year at the Broncos was a failure. I actually thought my first year, other than the semi-final when we got pumped by 50, I actually thought that was a better coaching Um better coaching job than I did the year before because we gave like 11 or 12 guys their debuts. I got to the preseason late. Um, we eventually won seven from 10 games or something to, to make the playoffs. I actually thought that was a better, I did a better job as a coach because we come in late and all that sort of stuff to make the finals that year. Now we got belted and that put a really negative spin on that first year. But the second year after COVID, mate, we were failures. We won one from 11, right? So I don't want to beat around the bush. And as a head coach, I put my hand up for that. Now, this is why I say, um, you know, failure, you've got to use it as a learning opportunity. There's not one coach or there's not one person or player that hasn't had some challenges thrown their way. Now, if you look at one of the greatest coaches of, of, of all time in soccer, um, Alex Ferguson, um, he, he was a game away from being sacked um, at Manchester United. He, he really was. Um, and they won the game with a young team. It was about his third season into the, into the, um, into the role. And then they went on a massive journey. Bill Belichick got sacked before he went to New England Patriots. Um, I heard Wayne Smith talk on your podcast, Duncan, about um, you know him resigning from from the All Blacks um, in the early two thousands because you know he felt as though he he failed the group. Um, there's two ways to look at failure. One, you can either you can look at it with a fixed mindset and think, shit, I'm no good as a coach because we come you know we come last or we didn't make the playoffs or we got flogged in the players. Or two, you know what? There's some learnings out of this. Do I like failing? No, I don't. But, okay, what's my takeaways that I can take into my next job? And that's the way I, I look at it. Um, you've got to have a growth mindset to it. But there's not one athlete or one coach who hasn't had failure in some way, shape, or form. Because if you've always had success, and this is the challenge for elite players who have always been outstanding players and they become coaches, right, you've only ever known one way of doing things because it's your way of doing things. And you've never had any failures with it, but you also don't have empathy for guys who are journeymen who are in and out of reserve grade or, or don't have great confidence in their own abilities or so on. So how do you deal with them? That's the challenge for, 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 for players who have been, sorry, for coaches who have been elite players at the beginning of their journey. So look, 
it is what it is. Um, did I like going through it? No, I didn't. But um, I could have either sat and hid behind the curtains, mate, and um, thought I was a failure, or you get up, you hold your head high, so I had a crack at something. Because essentially, mate, Duncan, in the day, mate, um, you know, I'm a deathbed. I want to look back and say, look, you know what? I gave it a crack. And I want to be a role model to my kids too, you know, about having a, having a crack at things. And I suppose the challenge of taking the England role along with Eddie is, is about having a, a crack at something. And um, I hope it's a success, but um, it could be a failure. But you know what? It's about the journey. It's about the challenge. It's about um, the, the experience. So um, I'll give them the best. I'll give them the best, um, you know, I'll give them my best, I suppose. I feel like anyone who's achieved anything has had their fair share of adversity and how you respond to it, it is it really defines anyone in life. And I feel learning that is probably a really valuable, as, as painful as it would have been, I feel like uh, anyone that can learn to deal with failure well will inevitably get some degree of success. How's your academic background influence your coaching? Because the amount of teachers that I speak to who end up becoming coaches at a really high level, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's no coincidence. So in, in your view, one, how has it positively impacted your coaching and has it negatively impacted your coaching in any way at all? Well, first of all, I think um, teaching is coaching or coaching is teaching. I don't, sit, I don't, um, I don't think there is any difference. Because essentially what you're trying to do, you're trying to have um, you know, your, your, your two or three key coaching points or teaching points, you know, or your learning intentions or whatever language you want to use in that space. Um, you know, you've got to be well-planned. You've got to give feedback. You've got to get feedback. You've got to look at processes and so on. So I think it's helped me enormously, um, you know, around planning, presenting, um, asking questions, the ability to ask questions and, and, and dig a little bit deeper, um, you know, that's really you know, that, that deeper understanding um, I think it's helped me with regards to um, planning or, tr or training drill, drill design, you know, so things like constraints, things like um, overload principle, things like, uh, you know, randomization of drills. I think it's helped me enormously. Um, has it hindered me? Probably only with regards to the, you know, what the, you know, the media, you know, say. Um, I think, um, you know, I don't think, um, everybody in, uh, you know, I don't think everybody um, understands that just because you've done a couple of degrees or you've been a university lecturer or a teacher, um, that you're talking gobbledygook, which is what I've been criticised for. Where it's it's the total really? opposite. So, um, <laughs> you know, so so mate, like I take it for what it is, mate. Like if I, like honestly, mate, if I listen to the media about me or I listen to social media about me, I'd be be crawled up in a ball in my room, mate. You know, hiding behind the curtain. So. It is what it is, mate. It doesn't impact um, me in any way, shape, or form. I think the teaching and the the, the academic background has helped me enormously, and I, I feel like um, one of the reasons why I've been a head coach, why I've been an assistant coach at Origin level, why Eddie's got me on board there, why I was an assistant down in Melbourne, is because of my teaching background. And um, there's a guy called Dave Weed, and I reckon your listeners should buy a book called The Art of Coaching from David Weed. David is uh, an exceptional um, gentleman. He's from AFL yeah. and he was Tommy Hafey's right-hand man. He's been right-hand man over a whole heap of different coaches. He's never been the front man. He is an exceptional educator. And he, what he says, he's got a program called the Next Coach Program, which myself and Adam O'Brien did actually back in 2013, but it's, it's for AFL players who are transitioning to becoming coaches or 
um, assistant coaches who won't be head coaches. And um, in in that program, he talks to to future head coaches about you need to have one teacher on your staff. Yeah, you need to have one because you because ultimately we want to try and improve our players. So how do we improve our players? Well, by training design, by presenting, by asking questions, by giving feedback, by understanding philosophy around what Wayne Smith spoke about, you know, teaching games for understanding and so on. So I think it's really important. I think it's helped me enormously. Do you mind just talking about some of the differences between being a head coach versus being an assistant coach versus being a consultant? Has has there been an adjustment for you as you've gone within the different roles? And how do you look at that? Well, first of all, I'll start with assistant coach. Assistant coach is all about, um, think of the assistant coach as the big brother, right? And, um, you know, he's the big brother that, you know, the players will go to, you know, if they've been dropped. So they, or, so they can kind of have more of a personal relationship. Yeah. With well, yeah, in a, lot, in a lot of ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know. But like, it's not so much, um, it's, it's more from the player. Like, you know, the player will, will say things to their big brother about their challenges or vulnerabilities more so than what they'll say to their dad often, right? Yeah. You understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, as an assistant coach, you you you've you're all about the X's and the O's, and you're all about looking after the players in your positional group or or you know um, in your specific role. You know, so there's there's a lot of one on ones. Um, you know, there's a, there's a a lot of communication and so on. As the head coach, think of the head coach as, as the dad, right? He's looking yeah. at the whole family. You know, he's looking at the real. You know, he's the these the bigger picture stuff. Now, the best clubs I've worked with, like Melbourne and South Sydney, they have fantastic people beside them. So Frank Panisi at, at um, the Melbourne no, Storm, Shane Richardson when he was at um, South Sydney, they actually take away a lot of the peripheral stuff or the distractions that can get put into a head coach's lap. So I, I thought I coached my best at South Sydney because of, of Shane Richardson taking away any of the distractions, I could really focus on relationships, you know, um, our game model, you know, the, the bigger picture planning stuff in and around our, our football. Whereas at Broncos, I felt as I was in board meetings, you know, dealing with sponsors, always in recruitment meetings or salary cut meetings and so on. And that takes away from what I think the main job is as a head coach. Now, you are the dad as a head coach, but, um, you know, Craig Bellamy talks about keeping the main thing, the main thing as a head coach. And the main thing is, the playing group. The main thing is your game wealth. The main thing is your training session that day. The main thing is your game that weekend. And I felt as though, um, you know, that's that's really important. So there is a, a big difference between assistant coach and a head coach because often head coach at some clubs, you're, you're, you're everything. You're on the, the recruitment and retention committee. You're on the salary cap auditing committee. You're on, you've got to deliver in board meetings. And guys like Craig Fitzgibbon and, and those guys who – becoming head coach, they'll find that there's a big difference between being a head coach and assistant coach. I'm not saying that you can't make it work, but you need good people beside you. That's one thing I worked out. As a consultant, my role at Newcastle was actually being a mentor to the assistant coaches and being a bit of a sounding board for the head coach and Adam O'Brien. Loved it. With about 10 or 12 weeks to go in the season, my role changed to looking after the defence. I was back on the grass for the last 10 or 11 weeks, which is unreal. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, so, yeah, all the roles are a little bit different, but um, certainly at NRL level, the head coach role versus the assistant coach role is vastly different if you don't have great support around you. And, and as I said, people like Frank Panisi, Shane Richardson, a couple of guys that I've worked with who are exceptional at allowing the coach to, to really focus on that week's game, that, that day's training session, 
you know, and, and everything that goes, um, you know, to, to making that a success. Um, something that I've, I've observed just through watching a lot and talking to a lot of people is, is how important mentors are. And almost a lot of sporting teams, not necessarily rugby in Australia, but the All Blacks almost appoint a mentor coach as, as someone that can talk to the, the, the main coach. And I think Eddie does the same in England. And there's a few other codes. I'm pretty sure a lot of the AFL teams are doing it yeah. now. In your experience, how important is mentorship for, for coaches um, as they develop into roles? So probably, um, you know, with, with Eddie, you speak of him, he's got Neil Craig. Now, now Craggy was a, a premiership winning head coach at Adelaide Crows and he'd been in a number of different clubs. But, um, like, I've done a little, you know, I've done a little bit, Bit of work with with Craggy over the last twelve months. So he's exceptional. I think, and, I, and Eddie's actually said this to me, but I think I wouldn't be a head coach again, at, whether it's rugby union or rugby league, without having a mentor, without having a, a coaching mentor sitting beside me. I see that person as more important than having a third assistant coach in a lot of ways, yeah. um, because of um, you know they they can see with some clearer eyes. And I thought that that's what I. Um, and that's what I did well for, for Adam and, and the coaching staff there, you know, just be a resource for them. So having a resource like a Neil Craig, what he's done in AFL and even outside of AFL and cycling is, is, is incredible. So having him as a resource to the assistant coach and the head coach is, is something really special. Um, so having a mentor, I think, is really important. Uh, John Dixon was my first mentor. I spoke about him earlier. He was from the Brisbane Broncos. He was exceptional at teaching and, and the core skills. He was a teacher. So, you know, all the core skills like early catch, pass up, um, you know, stepping into contact, you know, all the detail sort of thing. He was fantastic at, at teaching me the importance of the detail. And then Frank Panisi um, was, was he's always been a great sounding bill for me. Like, um, you know, I speak to him often um, and, you know, rely on him and his experience and expertise because he's been in rugby, he's been in rugby league, he's been um, a number of different clubs as well. And then, uh, you know, probably Eddie over the last few years, he sort of, I suppose um, once we met, we got on pretty good and probably stayed in constant contact those three years I was a head coach. And then over the last 12 months, um, doing some special projects for him. He's been someone who, you know, challenges my thinking, who I can ask ideas or ask advice from. So I think it's really important. All young coaches and your mentor doesn't have to have been an NRL head coach or a super rugby head coach or even a shoot shield um, head coach. You just got to have someone who's who's been in the game a while, seen some ups and downs, and, and someone who, who can be a you know a sounding board, so to speak. I've got to I've got to ask you've you've worked for uh, one of the best coaches I believe in world sport in Craig Bellamy. What did you learn from him? And did look an, another good coach that you work for, a great coach that you work working with and for is Eddie Jones. What well, what do guys like that have in common? Like what can we learn from guys like that? Yeah, well, first of all, I feel really blessed to um, have worked with with um, you know, Ballyoke at the Storm uh, and Frank Panisi. I mentioned him, and I'm really looking forward to working with, with Eddie. Obviously, I've done special projects. I haven't been able to get on the grass um, there yet. I'll, I'll get there um, towards the back end of November, uh, back in October. But um, I'm really looking forward to that learning opportunity. I've been able to use him as a mentor, as I said. But um, what did I learn from Ballyoke? Well, probably. Um, there's a couple of things that really stood out to me observing him, um, just his, um, his work ethic and how thorough he was. Now, you could probably say, well, most head coaches have you know, got a great work ethic and, and really thorough, but 
Um, he, he didn't get distracted. Like I said before, he had a little mantra, keep the main thing the main thing. And I think Frank Panisi allowed him to do that. So it was all about the next training session. What, what, what is important in this training session? Then it was about reviewing that session. Then it was about what's important tomorrow's training session. And then it was about what's important in this game, not setting goals of, you know, we want to be a top four team or we're going to be a top eight team or we're going to win the grand final. No, it was literally, you know, the process. That, that's the big thing I learned from him. The other thing was just how much he cared about his staff and, and, and his players. Like people probably see him in the box and he's quite emotional or in a half time or whatever, but... Just, I felt um, I felt really supported by him. I felt that he genuinely cared about myself um, as one of his staff members and my family. And, um, you know, so I learned a whole heap of, of him. And with Eddie, just his, um, his curious nature, like he's always looking to challenge, to get better, to um, provoke, to, um, I suppose, um, you know, I use that word curious. I just find him a really curious coach. So I'm really intrigued by that. Really looking forward to to um, yeah to working with him and being challenged and um, yeah but yeah both exceptional coaches in world sport aren't they those two so I'm, I feel really fortunate to have um, you know have had dealings with both. What's your rugby background like? Has it been obviously you've been doing stuff for Eddie already, but did you did you have any knowledge of rugby before starting that? And how, how have you gone about learning certain elements that you maybe weren't across? Yeah, it's really interesting one that like look, I played um, I played schoolboy rugby like most, you know, most league people play um, some schoolboy rugby along the way. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, apart from the schoolboy experience, um, it wasn't until around about um, I suppose 2006, 2007, when I was back in the UK, um, there's a, a famous defense coach called Sean Edwards who was at oh, Wasp yeah. at the time. And, and me and Sean played with each other in the Super League. So what I used to do is I used to go and spend time with Sean in London. He was at London Wasps and Ian McGeekin was the director of rugby. Um, Warren Gatlin was the head coach. Um, Sean was the defense coach. So I'd go and spend time with them. Thankfully, um, Sir Ian McGeekin would allow me into the coaches' box on game day. So this is going back about 15 years. And then what, um, Wales, yeah, Wales offered Sean the um, defence coach role in about, from memory, it might have been 08. Um, and then Sean would allow me to, to come in and spend time with the Wales squad. So I'd observe sitting on, on, on different things. And so, so that was a real sort of uh, opportunity to learn. And because of that curious nature, I, I you know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time, um, you know, with, with, with those guys learning and even, um, with the Welsh franchises like the Ospreys and so on. So, so that was a learning. And then um, at Melbourne Storm, a lot of coaches from around the world, whatever sport would come in. And because I was, I suppose, um, um, you know, at the time I was a skill development coach of the NRL team, they would want to come in and they want to learn about, you know, different techniques. So I would always get assigned to be, I suppose, the host um, of the coaches coming in over my three years there. So to spend time with guys like Stuart Lancaster, Joe Schmidt, Todd Blackadder, Aaron Major, um, Scott Johnson, Matt Taylor, who's now the Wallabies assistant, um, Scott Wiseman, all those guys come in at different times. So building relationships with those guys over the time. And then, you know, when Scotland would tour, Gregor Towns would ask to meet with me, so I'd go and meet him at a hotel and so on. So I've had a long association with shared learning. And then Gregor asked me to come over and do a consultancy with Scotland um, the end of 2018, my year at South Sydney. And I went over there for 10 days and essentially went into camp with them at um, St Andrews and um, I was in there for their preparation leading into their, their November test series. And really what he wanted from me was look at the program, 
give some feedback to the coaches on their delivery, their tra- training design, etc. Um, and and that's what I did. So I've had all these, you know, opportunities over a long period of time. And um, yeah, so so I've never coached a full season, but I've I've been, I suppose, part of um, you know, different consultancies, different projects, a lot of shared learning. So I don't come from zero knowledge, but certainly I don't consider myself to be an expert. But um, the challenge of this is, and um, Lisa Alexander speaks about this, the ex um, um, Australian netball coach. If you've got good processes, it shouldn't matter about the X's and the O's, you know. And and, I, and when Eddie spoke to me about it, he said, "Mate, um, you know, I think you can bring some good processes to us." Um, and obviously, um, you know, I'm a learner, so I'm, I'm yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm a novice. I feel like I've dealt with coaches all you know for the last 15 years, you know, and, and shared learnings and what could work, what couldn't work. So I come from a, a reasonable place, but certainly. Um, having coached my own side for seasons and things like that. What do you believe makes, well, sorry, what do you believe are the key elements that make a successful coaching team? Because coaching team is, is more important than just having a good individual head yeah. coach. Yeah. Is, is that fair? Yeah, no, definitely. Probably back to what David Whedon said. Um, you know, one he, he thought was like, you need a teacher. You needed a qualified teacher on staff. Just one of your staff. Let's say you've got four or five coaches. At least one of them needed to be a teacher. But it's more so probably what I saw at um, the Storm. I thought Frank Panisi and Craig Bellamy did a great job filling in the gaps, if that makes sense. So so Belliac's strength was his work ethic, how thorough he was, but he was he, he was ferocious with his work ethic, you know. Um, but then he had, like, a person like me who was a teacher, right? So yeah. um, and then he had someone like Adam O'Brien who – who had um, you know come through their system and and um, you know really knew the Melbourne Storm way of doing things you know so yeah the best coaching teams fill the gaps you know so whatever the strength of the weapons of the head coach are um, you know, in my opinion should you know they should fill the gaps and I think at times um, you know coaching groups get it right some coaching groups get it wrong and um, yeah but I, but I think that's the way to think about it you know if you're the head coach it doesn't matter at what level. And let's just say it's, uh, um, you know, say you've got one assistant coach with your, your second grade team, mate. You've probably got some strengths. Like I think you're an ex-forward, mate, from listening to your podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's your strength. You might fill that position in with, with someone who's experienced playing 10 or 9 or the outside backs, mate, you know, to fill the gaps in, in your knowledge uh, base. But hopefully that makes sense to people. I think think about filling the gaps. It, mate, it certainly does. I've got a few random questions for you. Have, have you got time for a few? Yeah, mate, yeah, yeah, I'm a good no, no, no worries, mate. Um, I've already asked about personal development. Is there something that you used to be certain about that you've recently changed your mind on? Um, yeah, probably probably an example is, you know, thinking about um, um, because it worked with one team, it would work with another team. Yeah. You know, so, I, you know, like the easiest example to, 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 to give is, you know, there were so many positive things we did at South Sydney and I probably thought naively, you know what, I'm late into the preseason, and so essentially I'm just going to pick up that game model and take that game model over there and rather than really look at the strengths and the weaknesses in that particular group. I, I just thought, you know what, um, I've got a way of doing things. I've got a, a, a way that I've had some success or seen, you know, significant improvement with the game model and, and then just – so I think that's, that's yeah, that, that's one easy example to show you, mate. Can I ask about 
about game models. So as a head coach, you're obviously responsible for the game model of the team. How do you go about designing? This is probably very long, uh, potentially very long answer, but do you, do you go in, look at the athletes you have, look at the group, the style of play, and then mold the game model around the guys you have? Or is it, this is the game model we have, and then you create the players or get the players in who can play that game model? What's your yeah, Look, I, you can't necessarily do that NRL level, mate, because you, you've got a squad that's been designed through salary cap or whatever else. So you don't have that luxury of going, okay, well, we need to get these six or seven players in. But look, I think there's a little bit of, of both. I think there's some strong principles that you have, for instance, okay? Like, um, yeah, so for me as a coach, my number one coaching philosophy from a defensive point of view is protect your inside shoulders. So that means that if the ball's inside you, you stay in square. Once the ball's gone past you, then you, you, you can, can fill the space. Right, so that's, that's, that's one principle that I don't care if I'm coaching South Sydney, Brisbane Broncos, Melbourne Storm or Central Queensland Capras or Randwick or Gordon, whoever. That's, that's my principle because I feel as though that keeps stability in your defensive line. Now, the things that you need to look at is, okay, what are your weapons? Now, I had some weapons at, at um, South Sydney, like, you know, Damien Cook, you know, his speed out of dummy half, Cody Walker, his tempo and his ball playing ability at the back of shape on the left-hand side. And John Sutton, who was an edge back row with his ball playing ability. Um, you know, Greg Inglis, you know, he's a weapon, giving the ball, early ball for him. You know what I mean? So I think I catered it well. And I was able to sort of, I suppose, design a game model that really suited that South Sydney group because I'd spent 12 months there as an assistant coach. Yeah. So I, I knew what their weapons were. Now, naively, I thought, you know what? Our game model, I can just transfer it, take it to Brisbane. We scored the most, you know, we went from a team that finished 13th or 14th for points scored in 2017 to the point, the team that scored the most points in 2018 by tweaking a few things. And naively, I thought, you know what, I can take that same game model. And and as I said, there's some non-negotiables about the inside shoulders and so on. But, you know, I talk about maybe the attacking side of things and, and we didn't have the weapons or we didn't have the same weapons as what I had at this at this club. So I think you need to, to look at both. There's some, some key um, you know, principles to your game model that just won't waver. Yeah. Like I said, use the example of inside shoulders, but I think there's some some things that you need to cater for the weapons that you've got in that particular group, which potentially is different to that particular group. And um, yeah, so that's 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 how I feel about that, or what I've learned about uh, that. A lot of a lot of the common themes here is is that um, it takes time. So, so I can imagine that you have an idea of what the game model is going to be. And then it's going to adjust as you learn more about the players and the coaches and you know, trends in the game. How, how, as a coach, you, you judge purely on results, but results don't often happen you know, overnight and it can take a bit of time to develop a group and, and to really get your squad and your team um, you know, humming, basically. How do you balance sort of short-term results with long-term success? Because it's, it's kind of a funny... Mix because it, it can take up to a long period of time till you can start actually getting yeah. success. But you in in the the career that you've chosen, it doesn't necessarily leave you enough time. If, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does, Duncan. You know, it do, does make sense. It's really a tricky one. Look, I'll give you an example. I, I signed for for five years with a six year in my option um, with the Broncos and. One of the reasons for the longevity of the contract was because they saw how many of these young kids were coming through. And, and 
So, so publicly, I felt as though the club was saying, we've got to be a top four side every year, but privately, they're saying, hey, this is going to take a bit of work. So we're going to, we're going to give you six years to, to, to shape this squad, to bring these kids through. Because it takes time going from zero games to 50 games or zero games to 100 games. As you said, mate, that's Absolutely. four, five seasons, six seasons. So that essentially was, 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 was the project. But what happens is when the scoreboard doesn't love you too much, mate, the, yeah. the long-term project or the long-term nature of the, of the, of the um, you know, I was never allowed to use rebuild, I was told, at the Broncos. Uh, the media, you know, if I ever said rebuild in the media, the media give me a hard time. But essentially that's what it was, mate. Look, they let a lot of older players go, like Friday and Maguire and Corbin Sims and, and even the years before that and Corey Parker and Hodges over the previous couple of seasons. So it was, they were starting again. And as I said, I think it was 11 or 12 guys we gave to booze to in my first year there. So Carrigan, Flegler... All those guys were starting at zero games and Haas was starting at two games and Fafita was starting at 10 games and Staggs was starting at 12 games. So, we, you know, in the end, with the, with the, the results, went from the, the long-term focus to, to the short-term focus. Now, I was making every decision on the long-term focus. I would never have let Andrew McCulley go to Newcastle Knights if I hadn't been told that, you know, if we let him go, we'll save money and we can keep Dave Fafita or, um, to, you know, we've got to let Andrew go. Because he was a great locker room person. He was full of effort. He was what I valued in a person. He was a team first person. But yeah. you have to make a short, you have to make, sorry, either make a, a decision in the, you know, okay, it might hurt us a bit in the short term, but let make a go. But in the long term, if we kept the day for feeder or one of the other young players who were going to be what we were hoping to be long term players, you've got to make those decisions. That's the tricky bit with a salary cap. It's a tricky bit where there's a salary cap without a draft. Um, so, so that was really challenging, and that's not X's and O's, mate, is it? No. Now, that's not me coaching. You know, being assistant coach at South Sydney, or being assistant coach with the Origin team, or you know, being the skill development coach um, with the NRL team at, at the Storm. It's that's everything but coaching. So that's where young coaches, when they first get an NRL job, that's what I see. You need some really good people around you as assistant coaches fill the gaps in, and you need a strong GM of football, and you need a supportive board because. You can't say this is a six-year project and then say, you know, year one publicly we're going to be a top four team because then everyone starts critiquing you on, on the language of being a top four team and people say, oh, the Broncos should never be a, um, anything but a top four team. Well, you're right, but that was in the salary, that was in the non-salary cap era when you have 15 guys play origin in the 7A each week. Yeah, so it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult one. Um, would I do things different? Possibly. I possibly would have just gone, right, this is all about the short term. Yeah. We got to win. We got to win. You know, we got to win next week, two weeks' time, three weeks' time, six months' time. I, I don't know. Maybe I, you know, but that's it's something. It's an interesting balance to, to get right, isn't it? Um, I was lucky enough to talk to Pat Lamb, and he said one of the big learnings that he had at the Auckland Blues is that any time he was going to join a team, he had to make sure that the organisation. Um, the vision of the organisation was similar to his vision yeah. because because when he joined them. It wasn't the same, and it ended up reflecting in results. A um, couple more questions for you, mate. I'm super grateful for your time. This oh, good, great. mate. I got, I got another 10 minutes, mate. It's fine. Beautiful, beautiful. Are there any books that you recommend to people frequently? Yeah, I suppose I've recommended too. Um, you know, The Art of Coaching by David Whedon. Uh, David, yeah. Google him. Have a look at the next coach course. Um, I've encouraged my assistant coaches to do it um, over different periods of time or coaches that connect with me. Um, so buy that book. The back end of it is the tactical, technical side of AFL, but the first three quarters of the book is The Art of Coaching. It's brilliant. 
Um, the yes. other book I would recommend is that Win It in the Locker Room. You, you Win It in the Locker Room by John Gordon and, and Mike Smith. I think that they're, they're both really good books. Any book by Damien Hughes. Damien Hughes um, has a podcast called The High Performance Podcast, I think it is. Well, he's written a num- yeah, it's a good yeah. podcast, but he's written a number of books from um, – the Barcelona you know, way. The Barcelona way. But he's, you know, he's written one on Ferguson and so on. But he's got about five books out now. So I reckon Google him and, and buy any of his books. They're always a good read. Um, so, yeah, th- those ones were really good reads. I think, um, you know, the other ones I've learned from are, are ones like um, there's a book called The Education of the Coach, which is about Bill Belichick and um, his journey, his failures, his successes. It's a, it's a really the book. Education of a Coach? Yeah, that is the actual title of the book's called The Education of a Coach. And it's about Bill Belichick. Like, you know, everyone thinks he's been this superstar, successful coach, but it talks about his failings, you know, how he got sacked early in his career. And, um, and I think as coaches, because we do, you know, not every season is a perfect season, is it? So you need to look at examples of people who have failed and who have gone, right, I need to tra- tweak a couple of things. You know, not change my philosophy, but I need to add a couple of things or if I was in that, um, if I experience that again, this is the way I deal with it the next time and so on. So, yeah, books like that are really good, but there's a couple of decent ones there for people. Uh, you, you mentioned the High Performance Podcast. Are there any other podcasts that you recommend to people? Um, for coaches, there's a couple of decent ones. Um, there, there's the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast that um, is hosted by Conor O'Shea. Um, so that was always a good listen. Um, so I think you know people will be able to search that one up. I think... Um, uh, there's a, a podcast called The Great Coach as well, and they interview a different coach, um, well, every couple of weeks or every week from different sports. So, um, you know, that, that's a really good one, I think. Um, yeah, like I said, there, there's a couple of decent ones there for coaches who are, you know, I'd imagine coaches are listening to this one. So there, there's probably two or three there. Is, is there any consistent advice that you constantly give young coaches? Or one big piece of advice? Oh no, I just think you know, um, you know, be curious, like you know, challenge, uh, you know, um, ch- challenge your thinking, challenge your ideas, ch- challenge. There's always there's potentially always a, a different way to do things, or a better way to do things, or an add-on here, or a learning there. So I just think you know, be curious. Like that's the thing. Be be curious and and, and be vulnerable as well. Two more questions, mate. What does success mean to you? Well, that's a really difficult one because, as I said before, people externally just see success on the scoreboard as a coach. But success for me is, is more than the scoreboard. It's it's about, you know, people away from footy, um, you know, so, so are they successful in life? You know, are they successful in their relationships and so on? So that, I think that's really important. Now, second to, to that is um, I said before, I actually thought I coached really well that first year the Broncos and we made it in the eighth spot. I actually thought I had to challenge and probe and, you know, prod and, and, and more so than I did the year before, but we got beaten 58 nil in the first semifinals. Everyone sees, and that was a failure, mate. Like that's, that was embarrassing that day. But I actually thought I did a better job as a coach that year than I did the year before when, when we were, you know, for, for all at halftime in the preliminary final with the Roosters, you know, week before the GF, you know, so, um, so success is, is is different, and a lot of the individual success. I love seeing players I've given the booze, you know, go on succeed, play fifty games, hundred games, play Origin, play Test forty, um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what I can can help with with um, with England. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's a, it's it's um, yeah, it's a different challenge again. 
Last question, mate. What advice would you give 18-year-old you? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think, um, you know, I've learned a lot. I've, I've had some, you know, I've had some failures before. I, I felt for a long time I was a failure because I didn't play first grade at the Broncos when I was a kid. I, I was probably an elite player coming through the juniors, and, you know, ca captain Queens under 19 level, but I only ever played reserve grade at the Broncos. And I regretted that because I, I don't think footy was my main priority there. I, I was going to university. Um, I trained hard and all that sort of stuff. And it was a really tough team to get into because they won two premierships in a row. But I, I felt like a failure for a long time. It wasn't until I went to Canberra and actually started playing first grade that I, I felt, you know what, um, I've achieved what I set out to, to, to do. But looking back on, you know, would I have been as, um, as good a coach if I hadn't have had that experience of being a bit of a journeyman at the Broncos or, you know, um, going to the, to, to the Raiders and, and, you know, being part of a squad that, you know, had Laurie Daly and Stewart and, you know, all those superstars and getting the experience to play with them or or even being a journeyman and going over to the Super League and playing for Hulking Survivors and London Broncos. I, I don't know whether I'd be as a well-rounded person. Now I feel as though, um, yeah, look, my advice would be, you know, you're going to make some mistakes, you're going to have some successes, you're going to have some failures, but you, you've got to learn um, with each one and, and keep moving forward. And hopefully I've, I've been able to show that to my, my, my daughters. Um, it would have been um, really easy for me to, what I say, you know, um, you know, shut the curtains and try and hide away. But, um, yeah, I put my hand up. I resigned at the Bronx. It, it didn't go well, but that doesn't mean I'm a poor coach. I think um, for the better part of my 15 years, I've had um, some really good um, moments of success and some really good, good, um, yeah, good experiences. Thank you so much for your time, mate. I, wonderful talking to you. I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, best of luck over in England, except when you play Australia. Yeah. Um, mate, thank you. Like, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Good, good on you, Duncan. I appreciate you having me on, mate. Good luck with your coaching, and um, and and you're doing a great job with this too, mate. I think there's um, yeah, there's you know, it's a great great um, resource for for coaches of any code, mate, to jump on. So well done. Thank you so much, mate. Enjoy the rest of your day, and um, yeah, thank you. Good man. Thanks, Duncan. Cheers, buddy. That's it, mate. All right, guys. That's today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Please make sure you check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Wandering Bear Sports. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Have a good one.